Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, where we fill clinics with engaged patients who value the treatment you provide. We help you increase your revenue, decrease no-shows and cancellations, and deliver better outcomes and higher patient satisfaction. If you want to learn more about that, you can head on over to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. That's rehab, the letter U, practicesolutions.com. Well, this week on the show, we're taking a bit of a break from healthcare treatment, evidence-based practice, and the like, even taking a slight break away from patient engagement and retention. And we're going to talk with a couple of folks about healthcare innovation, innovation in the way of business models, in delivering value in healthcare, and all of that entails. Um, this is a, a real great fan moment for myself. <laughs> uh, we got to, to have a conversation between myself, Ron Baker, and Ed Kless. Now, Ron and Ed host the radio show and podcast, The Soul of Enterprise, and we'll link to all this in the show notes. Um, and they, they're both accountants, they're both professional consultants working with uh, professional services firms. And a lot of what they talk about on the show is around pricing models, around business models, about subscription, about innovation in the way that professional service organizations do business. In fact, Ron Baker has written a couple books, one of them being Implementing Value Pricing, a Radical Business Model for Professional Firms, and he's also written The Professional's Guide to Value Pricing. Um, we, I, I first got turned on to them and their show by listening to the folks actually over at Win Without Pitching, and Blair Ends over there talks about, on the Two Bods podcast, talks about the soul of enterprise every now and then. So I went over and listened to them and really liked what they had to say. And they actually had a few, a few guests on the show, on their show around uh, direct primary care and that, that type of business model where it's more direct to consumer, where we're cutting out the insurance model or the insurance payer, those third party payers that in some ways provide ulterior or different incentives that don't necessarily align with those of the patient or the provider. So Ed and Ron and I talked a little bit about kind of what brought us here to our current situation in the U.S. in particular, where we've got this um, sort of quasi, you know, government-run healthcare through through things like CMS and regulators and Medicare and this private market and the whole idea of what third-party payers do and how that incentive structure ultimately leads to increased costs sometimes or decreased quality of care. And we talk a little bit about what has been done, what can be done, um, and what kind of innovation is taking place currently within healthcare to kind of alleviate that the burden and the cost that's becoming more and more associated with receiving healthcare. We talk a little bit about the conflation between health insurance and healthcare and kind of what that 
discussion in the in the political discourse has been and how that has kind of altered the the solutions that have been proposed because of the way we're viewing what is healthcare and what is health insurance and kind of the differences between both. So hopefully um, this this conversation will be insightful and entertaining and maybe give you some uh, different views about how we look at healthcare, how we look at innovation and business models within healthcare, particularly in the U.S. system, and kind of what we can do as clinicians, as providers, as organization administrators and owners moving forward to be able to actually deliver true value to the ultimate end user, which is the patient. So without further ado, here's Ron Baker and Ed Kless talking with me about innovation in healthcare. Well, hey, Ron and Ed, welcome to the show. How are y'all? Uh, very good. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Um, before we dive too far in, um, why don't we start with you, Ron, and then with uh, we'll hit you up later, Ed. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your work, and uh, tell us a little bit about the Solo Enterprise. Wow. Um, I'm a recovering CPA, so started my life as a CPA <laughs> in a big eight accounting firm. After I left there, I went out and started my own firm, and that kind of brought me into the whole pricing aspect of it and the value aspect. I realized very quickly that the billable hour, as most professionals price, is a really bad customer experience. So I started offering fixed prices to my customers long before there was anybody on the circuit talking about it. There were no books about it. Probably made every mistake under the sun but knew that we were doing the right thing for our customers. And that's why we stuck with it. I'm so glad we did because it transformed our firm, but it also brought me to teach. And then I published a book and that book kind of took off around the world. And then in about 2001, I stopped uh, practicing and started Verisage, which is the think tank that Ed and I are involved in. And I've been consulting, writing and speaking full time ever since. Awesome. Thanks so much. And Ed, tell us a little about yourself. Yeah, my background is I began in the computer software implementation space. I did uh, implementations of accounting software for about a decade or so. I then left, founded my own company to do some consulting work for Microsoft and then Sage. And then I came on board full time with Sage. And I think somewhere in the first year of working with Sage, I, I, Ron and I connected at that point through lo long series of events, but uh, Ron was so kind as to ask me to become a fellow in the Verisage Institute. And then 10 or so years later, he asked me again to uh, be the co-host of the Soul of Enterprise. So we're, we're, we've been doing that uh, for what, seven years now, Ron. So. Oh, holy smokes. A long running show then, huh? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Labor of love. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan of the Soul of Enterprise. It's actually what me uh, what made me reach out to y'all. So thanks for taking the time, giving us a little background, and and just for being on the show. I'm hoping we we get into some interesting stuff here. So I really wanted to talk about innovation in healthcare from kind of like a business economics, even that kind of pricing value perspective. Um, but before we get into that, let's take a few minutes and talk. Just about, I hate being all negative, but what's wrong with the healthcare system, particularly here in the U.S.? Um, and we can talk about like you know the incentives, how value is misaligned, and and how, like I guess the main question is how does our current model of doing healthcare, which is currently you know fee for service, 
contribute to this misaligned incentives between kind of all the major players. You've got patients, payers, providers, and poly policymakers. So how does our current model kind of mess with the, the incentives, if you would? How much time do you have? Go, go, go <laughs> Just ahead, five Ed. minutes, Ron. He's at <laughs> five minutes. Go ahead. Oh, gosh. All right. You're going to throw this one on me. Well, I, I, this is a, a larger point that Ron and I oftentimes make on the, on the show, and that is when, when the price system is messed with by government, it always messes things up. And government action begets government action. I, I, I think we can probably begin back in the, I guess it was the 40s during World War II, and the, the change that allowed well, it was actually a price control, a wage control that said you couldn't increase folks' wages. So instead, what people started offering was health care benefits to their employees. Then in 1955, uh, the, the, I, I believe the IRS said, OK, the companies can take those that, 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 that is an expense before taxes. But if you as an individual want to buy insurance, you've got to take that as that with after tax dollars. So now we're all tied with our health insurance to our employer, which is stupid because we don't do this for our, our car insurance yeah. or anything else. So this is just maddening. In addition, now we've expected insurance to cover the mundane. Our car insurance doesn't cover oil changes and tires and, and gasoline, but yet we expect the healthcare that we have to, or that be all inclusive. I don't want to have to pay anything uh, and, and to all be covered by insurance. And this again has been then messed with the price system. Uh, even if my understanding anyway, even if you are not going to someone who pays, goes to Med Medicaid, the price that you're paying is somehow related back to the Medicaid price. And this is why if you get your crazy explanation of benefits, you'll see three columns, one with, okay, this was the price that was charged. The other, which would, okay, this is what your insurance paid. And oh, by the way, this is what you have to pay out of pocket. And what I found is that there seems to be a rule of 10 as you move through this, like the, 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 the leftmost column is 10 times the price that the insurance company paid. And then you probably pay about 10% of that as your premium. And if you add it up over the case. So my question that I have never been able to get a straight answer to is when when we keep hearing we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world, which of those three flipping columns yeah. are they basing that off of? Because the leftmost one is an accounting fiction. Nobody pays this price. So anyway, the short answer, uh, the, well, this is a very long answer to the question that the reason why it's all screwed up, in my view, is because government has messed with the price system and always and everywhere bad things will follow ron you want to add to that yeah i'll just uh i'll say third party payments that account for what 80 or 90 percent of every health dollar spent yeah is a big problem i mean if this is how we shop for groceries fido would be eating filet mignon every night right yeah. because i'm not paying for it i don't have to care about the price ed and i often talk about these the, the four ways to spend money right you can spend your own money on yourself or you can spend your own money on someone else, like a family member, like a gift, things like that. But what happens when you spend someone else's money on yourself, like a corporate expense account? Well, probably gonna get the lobster, the upgrade rental car, probably sit in first class on the airplane. But what happens when you spend someone else's money on yet someone else? Now you're totally removed from value. There's no feedback loop. I take money from A, I spend it on C, and I don't have to care what A thinks, and I don't even have to care 
about what C got for that money if they're satisfied or anything else. There's just no feedback loop. The other thing I'd, I'd add to what Ed said is I think in this country we conflate healthcare with health insurance. Yeah. And I think that's a big mistake. The two are very, very separate. It, it, you know, I can get, I can get auto repair work without having auto insurance, right? I mean, th- these are two separate things, um, and the opaque pricing is is very, very destructive. The fact that we can't get a price for an MRI, even simple blood work, out of a hospital or or most of the other providers, says a lot about how corrupt or not corrupt, but how opaque the system is. Imagine if we had to, you know, uh, go through the same process when we're buying a car. Yeah. We didn't know the price of any car, you know. We'll let it, you know it, after it, you sign on the dotted line, right? <laughs> absolutely. It's absolutely, it's crazy. And I think another reason for the uh, the incredible growth in, in um, healthcare spending is, first off, let's admit that the quality of the care is far superior in 2021 than it was in 1970, 80, even 90. You know, we've gotten better diagnostics, we've gotten better equipment, better surgical things. My mom just had a heart valve that's probably added, you know, another decade onto her life. I mean, that's amazing and it wasn't available 10 years ago. Um, So one of the reasons for the increase that we're all paying is is because of these third-party payers we the consumer has no incentive to shop none whatsoever and that's a big problem so i there's probably more we could say about this but those are the big ones yeah no that's an interesting point ed what you brought up about kind of this all started with a a, not a bad policy but you know was it hazlitt that said a lot of a lot of what economics is is people not understanding a lot of the economic problems we have are people not understanding the consequences of policies that they're putting in place, right? And it kind of walks us down that road. Well, now we're tied to these employers for this health insurance. And then what you said, Ron, like the whole pricing feedback and incentive, if I'm not shopping around, I don't care. Oh, my insurance is going to pay 15000 for that. And they would have paid 14000 in the other hospital. I don't care. I'm paying a $10 copay, <laughs> right? And it kind of exactly right. screws all of that up from the kind of from the beginning. <laughs> What about yeah, it's it, it, like I said, it's government action begetting government action. That exactly. whole the whole notion of the thing that started as a, a a wage control ended up partially to blame for the mess that we have today. Yeah, talk about unforeseen. Like they didn't. I'm sure that that was not even on anybody's radar when they were putting that price control on. Right. Nope. Yeah. Well, what about so we've talked a little bit about kind of the insurance side of things and the the patient side of things. What about those providers? Any incentives in the current structure that kind of excuse them to maybe see more or provide more than they would otherwise normally provide if it was a standard, if there's a different pricing model at play? Wow. When you're in a fee-for-service model, your incentive to do what? Do services. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this is the difference between, I think, healthcare and health, Right. Healthcare is viewed as services, this diagnostic, this test, this whatever. And it that's not, it, a lot of those are probably unnecessary um, or at, at least probably not needed. And it, conf- it conflates healthcare with um, services. The goal of a doctor should be to keep you healthy, not just to cure you when you're sick. And this is why we're so enamored with the direct primary care concierge medicine models, because 
those doctors face the right incentives. They're not incented to provide you with services, to order tests and diagnostic. They're there to keep you healthy and they're not going to get paid anymore for if, if you take more tests or pills or whatever. And I think those are the right incentives. Yeah. So you're not linking yeah. it to CPT codes and the like. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it's a question of, of this being of, of doctors doing unethical and immoral things. It's the incentive structure behind it. The, the incentives and the two words that all economists mostly agree on is incentives matter. So when you, you create these incentive systems that there there's, it's going to lead to bad decisions that are ultimately made on, on behalf of the patient. And, and just, it needs to be said too, some of the reasons I think they order, maybe over order these tests, it's not malevolent intent at all. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but it's defensive medicine. Yeah. Right? They're, they're worried about being sued. So there's a big litigation aspect to this as well. Litig you know, tort reform, whatever, um, that, that also impacts this. Yeah. Even from like a regulatory standpoint, as a, as a clinician, like I know that I'm thinking in the back of my mind, well, I got to do this or else, you know, it could always be pointed down the line, even if it's unrelated, right. That it could be exactly. your fault. So these doctors are ordering a test just to be on the safe side. Right. Um, yeah, we had a kid <laughs> side story. We had a child who was like, he was 34 pounds at 16 weeks, like giant kid, um, was being nursed. So the doctor wasn't too worried about it, but then he called back and said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to order this test. And it was like some crazy, you know, DNA test to check something for one gene that might have been a, a possibility. Right. Um, and when I'm talking about it, we, we, we've been cash pay for a while. It's like, well, why are we doing this? He's like, really, I just want to make sure that like, I'm covering my bases <laughs> so that you don't come back in years and say, why didn't you miss it? Right. So there's definitely that at play too. It is that defensive medicine where doctors are, are kind of on the defense trying to cover their own, tails so to speak right that's raising the cost everywhere right so um ron you mentioned you you did work in value pricing and fixed prices and you've even written a book on it um in your view kind of being somebody who's done this on the service side and i know accounting is different than healthcare, and there's a whole lot more kind of in the background from a regulatory standpoint but um, what are the biggest challenges when you're talking about implementing value-based pricing models? Let's just start with the service sector and then maybe we'll dig into why there's some specific difficulties in healthcare, but like, what's the big challenge between going from, all right, I'm doing the service and I'm going to charge you this price for it versus here's kind of the value. And we're going to do a value-based arrangement based off of this, you know, whatever the outcome is going to be. <laughs> The biggest hurdles government regulation i mean there's so much regulation on doctors that they don't really get to set their own prices their prices are set either by medicare or like ed said a derivative of medicare that the private insurance companies use and so they you know that used to be they used to be called drgs diagnostic related groups yeah. they'd get paid a certain amount and it was kind of like the labor theory of value you know we well we estimate that it takes the doctor so long to do this and they have an hourly rate blah 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 it's just absurd. That's not how prices are set in the market. But unless you break that mold from the third party insurance, it's very hard for medical providers to set their own prices. Because again, what is it? I, I, and I should have looked this up. What is it? 70 to 80 or 90% of every medical dollars from a third party payer. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And those with the gold make the rules. So 
the government and the insurance companies are setting the prices. They're negotiating the prices that they are willing to pay doctors and hospitals. Yeah. And there's almost, well, on the, on the provider side too, there's like the, we haven't talked about being in network with insurances, but there's kind of that too. Like if you sign a contract with this insurance company, the provider is hamstrung, right? They, they're stuck taking whatever the contract rate is, regardless of how much they would like to discount it even. <laughs> right. Right. It, it's why I think a lot, so many doctors are willing to take 30 or 40% less if you pay them cash, right? Because then you don't have to go through the bureaucracy of the insurance system or Medicare, or Medicaid, whatever. Um, but yeah, that, that's a big problem. But it, when you look at healthcare markets that don't have insurance reimbursements, I'm thinking like LASIK surgery, cosmetic surgery, when you look at those markets, veterinarians, even dentists to some extent, because insurance yeah. isn't the biggest factor in their world, um, prices are pretty much in check. In fact, they're going down. I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got patients shopping around, right? And there are some of those popping up in the medical space. Like I know there's some imaging companies now you can go to and pay, I don't know, four or 500 bucks and get an MRI, or you can go to get blood work done at these places, but it's still, for the most part, it's still relatively high. And those places still accept insurance too. So there's, there's kind of like a hybrid, hybrid, hybrid deal going on, which is difficult to do, I guess, depending on your on your specific specialty. Um, but specifically around like subscription model, um, I know it, on the soul of enterprise, you've talked about how the subscription form of pricing is kind of like the highest form of value pricing. First, break that down for us a little bit and then we'll talk about it um, kind of as it relates to healthcare and DPC a little bit. Yeah, sure. I, uh, Ron has, and I have begun to refer to subscription pricing as value pricing 2.0 and making that that point that you just made that is the the highest form that we know of there might one day be something that evolves be, yeah. beyond that but the, the the reason is is because it really does put the relationship at the at the center of what it is that you're trying to do which for any professional whether it's an accountant whether it's a lawyer whether it's a doctor is really what you want to do and as ron said the whole notion of uh, of um, the professionalism. That's what professionals do. Uh, we have a colleague at the, at the various agents to, to Tim Williams who tells this great story about landscapers and um, how when, when he was looking for a landscaper for a rental property that he owned, he had three people come by. The first one came by with a clipboard and said, it's going to take me two hours to do two to four hours a week. I'll send you a bill for 25 bucks or whatever. The next one said, I'm going to do all of this stuff, but I'm going to give you a fixed price of X per month. But the third one came and said, Tim, what, tell me about this. Tell me about this house. turns out it was a rental property. Tim lives in a different state. He says, tell you what, I'm, I'm going to give you, make sure that your property has the best curb appeal in the neighborhood. And it's going to be this price. If a bush, a bush needs replacing, I'll replace it. Trees need trimming, whatever it is, your house is going to have the best curb appeal in the neighborhood. And then Tim asks the question when he tells the story, well, which one do you think I went with? And everybody in the audience will say, well, the last one. He said, I wish, because that person doesn't exist. <laughs> and I, I, but, but that best curb appeal in the neighborhood put really put the, the relationship at the center rather than the transaction. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about here with DPC is that it puts the relationship and wellness at the center of what it is that the doctor and the patient are trying to work together on. 
Um, and and I think that's so what, whatever the, the the doctor equivalent of best curb appeal in the neighborhood is, you know, you at your most healthy uh, is 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 what it is that we're trying to 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 price. And that that's that's why it's in this in a sense, this highest form of pricing. Ron, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I'll just say to that the highest form of pricing is to pay for performance performance or a, a specific outcome rather than just a promise from marketing or whatever. Yeah. Right. So I know in 2017, the drug, the drug maker Amgen um, entered into an agreement with Harvard Pilgrim uh, where one of their drugs, I think it was uh, Repatha, which is a treatment to reduce heart, heart, heart attacks and yeah. strokes. Um, they said, look, if you get a heart attack or stroke while you're on this thing, and this thing was like, you know, eight grand a year or something therapy. Um, give you a rebate. And because of that, they actually ended up lowering the price by like 60% down to 58.50. It must've cost more than 8,000. It's probably more like, you know, 13 or something. Um, but a year later after this program, they actually lowered the price because they figured out what, what the actual performance of it was. I mean, that's pure value pricing when you're charging base commensurate with the, with the actual outcome that you're getting. But that's really hard to do in services. Really yeah. hard to, you know, a lawyer is a lawyer only going to get paid when they win the lawsuit. Well, plaintiff's attorneys are, but what about your contract lawyers? What about your accountants? Are they only going to get paid when you have a clean audit? You know, the, and and I can hear the doctors revolting. Are we only going to get paid when the patient's well? Because yeah. a lot of things the patient do, does is outside of our control, right? Yeah. So uh, I don't know if we'll ever get to the highest uh, level of value pricing, but it would be that pay for performance, not promises. Yeah. No, and ultimately with, with health, the, with, with health, it's a big problem because ultimately we all get to the Boolean answer of dead or alive at some point. I mean, yes. <laughs> unlike, unlike, I guess, you know, win lawsuit, lose lawsuit, that's going to happen in your lifetime. Um, you know, but, but, but ultimately with healthcare, we all got the same end in mind here. This is what's going to happen to us regardless. So it's a, it's a huge challenge. We can't just pay the oncologist when they cure the cancer or put, yeah. can't, you know, even if we die, does it would it be fair to withhold pay from the oncologist you know those types of questions yeah which is why something like a subscription model or direct primary care or something like that makes a little bit more sense because it is it is a little bit more there's more in your control right like even even a primary care physician like if you're telling your your patient not to do something they're going out and slamming twinkies and beer on the weekends you know like <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to hold the, the doctor accountable for that right <laughs> and just yep, and, yep. and from what I've read and and learned from like Dr. Paul, who we've had on the show a few times, the DPC out of Detroit, um, the DPC doctors, this is why they got into medicine to help people. They didn't do it to to you know have three thousand patients and spend you know five minutes with them at a time. Um, Dr. Paul maxes out at six hundred patients. So he's always got capacity. He can come to your house, your office, whatever. He can spend 45 minutes or an hour or two hours with you. Uh, but, but that's so much more fulfilling. It's why these people entered the profession in the first place. Rather than to go on this hamster wheel, it seems to me like, like fee-for-service in the medical profession is as bad as the billable hour is in the legal and, and other professional sectors that use it. 
uh, it's just a, it's just a hamster wheel, and and we're confusing being busy with being effective and making an impact on the people that we're privileged to serve, and that's why I think the DPC model is so great because it knocks out that third party, it restores the relationship between the physician and the patient, one of the most sacred. Uh, relationships out there besides your lawyer and your priest, maybe, uh, or your rabbi. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I just think that that is a much saner way to go. And I think we would have seen DPC long before 1996 when Howard Moran did it at MD Squared. He was the first, by the way, to start a concierge practice, 1996. So yeah. it's been 25 years. And I just bet in fact, I bet my life on it that the, the movement would have taken off a lot quicker if it wasn't for the government's involvement so deep in this sector. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to add that, 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 that that's the other thing that DPC does in that subscription is it, 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 it eliminates the policymaker from the conversation completely, which I think is the best part of the story is it's a full end around and we, we don't have to worry about what anybody in, in, in my case, Austin or Sacramento or Washington, D.C. thinks should or should not be included in your in your health care, what you're doing. It's ridiculous. And it restores the incentive for the provider to compete, to serve it, to serve that patient. And just like Amazon competes to serve us. Right. And they have to constantly exceed our expectations and delight us and all of that. Uh, and there is not that who, who's, who's the master in the current relationship with these four parties. <laughs> you know, it used to be said that a slave with two masters is a free man. Yeah. Who's accountable. Who do I hold accountable? Do, do I get pissed off at my doctor or do I get pissed off at my insurance company? Well, if I have a DPC relationship, now there's a direct line of accountability. He's got to keep me, she's got to keep me happy and, and, you know, vice versa. I've got to follow their advice. Otherwise they could fire me. Yeah. Well, and that, it puts a little bit more kind of power, not pow power sounds bad, but control in the hands of the provider. Right. Because if yep. you are, if you're at that space, like Dr. Paul is, or even Dr. Lambert that we've had on the show, like they're already maxed out and there's a line of people waiting to get in the door to see them. And if you're not going to do, you know, if you're not going to get with the program, there's a line of folks that will, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's a scalable model for those guys. I think Dr. Paul now has got three other doctors working with him and he's opened up a second office. And this is just in the short time that Ed and I have known him. Uh, he started right out of residency with a DPC, so he didn't have to do a transition. He started this way because he yeah. saw it as a better model. And I think too, Rafi, that it could solve the GP shortage that we have in this country because it offers these, these, these GP doctors, a better quality of life. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to ask you about that too, because you, on the surface, you hear, well, this doctor went from seeing 3000 patients and now they're maxing out at six. There's already a, a doctor shortage. So people are like, well, we can't have all the doctors do this because just the numbers are that are adding up or like right. a third of what we're normally seeing. But you're saying that just the, the, the lifestyle that it provides or the work-life balance or whatever kind of makes it so that these doctors that are kind of leaving by attrition, so to speak, because of the workload and the burnout just won't be doing that, right? That's right. It's going gonna, it's gonna to attract it, uh, more people into the GP space. I think, you know, I guess medical school is just like any other professional sector, specialized, 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 just drilled into your head since yeah. day one. And 
I know a lot of people that say they enjoy being a GP allows them to kind of take a more holistic view and all of that. And everything's not just cancer or back surgery or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, and I do think it, it could increase the, uh, the incentive just to stay in, in general medicine. Well, and you could, we could see competition emerge out of different places, such as, you know, Walmarts and, 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 uh, uh, nurse practitioners who are doing what, what, the, what things that they are allowed to do, uh, but, but, but competing in a sense with doctors. So, you know, Hey, maybe when we're, when we're young and healthy and well, all we need is a, is a, is a nurse practitioner to, to, to keep us on, on target. Why not? Why do we, why do, and then if, especially if that nurse practitioner has a relationship with a doc that, that if it's something beyond their capability that they move them over, this is what accounting firms and law firms have been doing for years. If you, if I'm go to somebody who for a will and all of a sudden I have something that's beyond their capability, they're not going to say, Oh, okay, I'll, I'll handle that for you too. They're going to refer me. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that that, that that would be a very good thing because we would then have multiple level levels of competition for this general practitioner space. And we'd ultimately end up um, through economies of, of scale of uh, being in a much better position. Yeah, no, it's interesting you bring that up. I've got a buddy who's a PA and he started a direct primary care organization. He's got a link with one of the doctors and they mm -hmm. kind of run it that way, right? Um, there's innovation happening everywhere, right? <laughs> there is. I just heard yesterday about this group uh, that was started this year. It's called Crowd Health, and oh, for, interesting. It's like uh, you know they charge like, if you're 59 or whatever and up. I think it's 325 a month. You pay 500 dollars per health event. You're so you're on the hook for the first 500, and then above that, the crowd chips in. Now they've got relationships with doctors and surgery centers that can get that cash price, so they're you know, paying half or whatever the doctor would normally charge insurance companies. Um, and for people that want more on this, uh, I listened to this podcast called Tom Woods, the Tom Woods Show, and it's episode 1985. And he had on the CEO and founder of, uh, of this uh, company, CrowdHealth, uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. So I'd never heard of this before, but it's an interesting idea. It's this type of innovation that we would have seen as far back away as, you know, 1996, probably sooner even, um, if this sector wasn't so highly regulated, you know, highly regulated sectors in any economy are never hotbeds of innovation. Yeah. Uh, just from a, from a, like an incentive structure, why is that? Is that just because it's, it's too hard to fight the regulation or the regulation kind of kills it before it's even the spark becomes a flame? It's both. Plus, you might not be able to reap the rewards uh -huh. of that innovation. I mean, the drug companies might be an exception because they can reap the reward. They get patents, you know, uh, but it, it, it's just really hard because I think it, regulation stifles uh, the new and the creative. You know, creativity ta always takes us by surprise. Yeah. So, it, I mean, if it could be planned, uh, then we wouldn't need it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's similar to like telehealth and virtual service delivery, all of that, like up until, well, we, we're not going to say the word, up until the pandemic struck, like there were people that were doing virtual services, but they were doing it cash-based and private pay because there wasn't, there wasn't a payment or it, there wasn't a payment or reimbursement model in place for that. Like how do you gauge asynchronous telehealth where it's like, 
the patient is shooting a secure message to a doctor and they're, they're sending it back. Well, do you charge 10 bucks for that? Like, how does that work? Um, if you're in a DPC model, obviously that's, it, that takes it all out of the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is one of those things that, that the regulation and kind of the payment reimbursement model has kind of crushed innovation in that mm-hmm. space. There's like no point in exploring asynchronous service delivery because you, you're not going to get paid. It's hard to document it and all that kind of stuff. Well, and then who writes the regulations? Usually it's the larger organizations that can afford to upkeep yeah. with the regulations. You know, this is the the thing we're hearing about now from the tech companies. And you know, big surprise, Facebook says, yeah, let's regulate social media. <laughs> Why? Because they're the ones who can afford it and that would be able to crowd out any, co- any new upstart competitor that can't afford to do what these regulations that guess who's going to write Facebook (laughs) and others that, you know, I mean, and we saw that, I think, with Obamacare as well. The overwhelming majority of Obamacare was written by insurance companies and and pharmaceutical companies. Big surprise. Yeah. Yes, that's that in and of itself is a problem, right? (laughs) That kind of communism in the in the way it's structured. Um, Yeah, it's not it's not capitalism. It's exactly that. It's cronyism or worse, corporatism. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to circle back to that that kind of crowd health you were talking about, Ron. So we've been part of a a health share for years, basically since I struck out on my own from leaving the VA. And it's kind of that same model where kind of everybody pays in. There's a big organization that's kind of negotiating on our behalf and you, you you know, you pay the deductible isn't the right word because it's not insurance. Um, And kind of linking that idea to direct primary care and all that, whenever I'm talking to friends or colleagues about what we're doing for health insurance and how we're doing healthcare and all that. I say, Oh, we're doing, you know, we're doing a health share. And they, I get these blank stares, like, why would you do that and not insurance? So how much of the, how much of this kind of slow moving innovation in this area is, is related to the fact that maybe from a behavioral economic standpoint, that the consumer just is so entrenched in this idea of, well, I have, I need healthcare. I need health insurance. They're going to pay for it. Yeah, <laughs> that, th- that's a great question. The entrenchment, the apathy, uh, it's the devil I know, right? Versus yeah. this new thing that I don't know. Um, but I think that, that that'll begin to change as these alternative models prove themselves in the marketplace. I mean, from what I've read about the DPC patients, they're admitted to the hospital less, they have less comorbidities, yes. they take less Medicaid, prescription medication, which the drug companies have even noticed and another reason they don't like them. Uh, and you know, that's got, that's, that's performance. I mean, they're, they're showing and documenting results. And I think consumers offered the choice will gravitate to their best, you know, their best option. So I, I'd be pretty optimistic that as long as the market's free to offer the consumer and the, and the consumer's free to choose, then, um, I, I, I think these models will come to dominate outfits like the Oklahoma Surgery Center, you know, yeah. which is amazing. Uh, talk about transparency and prices. You click on the body part, you know, and you see the, the price in full of what, you know, the gallbladder removal is going to cost or the hip replacement, whatever. Um, and the other thing, just to get back to what you and Ed and were saying about the regulation, licensing laws. Look at the craziness, oh, yes. craziness. If, you know, if I'm in California, but go, go get some type of medical care when I'm in Arizona, um, now that guy, now I can't telemedicine with him because he's in a yeah. different state. This, this is insanity. 
right? <laughs> and and I think that's slowly beginning to change as well. They're starting to recognize that, hey, if you're a doctor in Arizona, you should be able to practice in California over the phone. Yeah. I think some of that too is, is just, again, like innovation and creativity takes us by surprise. Like telehealth and technology kind of expanded so quickly that a lot of these regulatory bodies just weren't set up for like, how do we regulate in the 21st century? Because we're still doing it <laughs> like we would for the 20th, right? Absolutely. So. Or 19th, but yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, so I, I live in Georgia and um, I sit on the state board of occupational therapy. I'm trying to get things changed over, over there, over here, but we're having licensure issues because, you know, COVID kind of slowed everything down stuff or, you know, people are working from home. They're trying to process things differently. Georgia is one of the few states that still accepts and only does paper applications for medical licensures, you know? So, <laughs> so we're talking in a meeting and I'm like, you know, Maryland is a 24 hour turnaround time, but theirs is all online and it's by a button. Right. So regular regulators in general take a long time to, to catch up with what's going on with modernity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so true. And and I think I do think I mean, there is some onus here to put on the population patients, yeah. whatever you want to call them, because they think that health insurance is again, they're conflating the health insurance with health care. And I think the profession needs to do a better job educating people that we buy in insurance for things that we don't want, period. Yeah. Right. I don't want an earthquake. I don't want a fire. I don't want to die. I don't want to become disabled. You know, I'm thrilled to pay it and not and not use it. Um, but when it comes to healthcare, man, no, 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 no. I want what I want the Cadillac plan, and I only want to pay five dollar copay. <laughs> I want free drugs. That's not insurance. Yeah. And now I know it's in the insurance company's in uh, you know interest to sell that message but it's not in the doctor's and the other medical professionals' interest to uh, you know, go along with that message. That message is wrong. Insurance is for things you don't want. It's for, so my ideal world is totally free healthcare with uh, HSAs and DPCs, concierge, and catastrophic insurance for things that you can't afford, just like all our other insurance, you know, that, that's paid for by the individual, uh, you know, yeah, and just because, right. because the, the, yeah, the big, the big side note here, and this is the, probably one of the most, you were talking earlier, Rafi, about the unseen, but one of the biggest unseen parts of this is how many people stay with their employer in a job that they don't want yeah. strictly to hold on to their health insurance and the, 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 the economic, uh, problems that that causes, uh, that, that people are not able to f more, more freely move from job to job to job for fear of losing their health, their, their health insurance. That's going to piggyback onto, you know, a, a, a pre-existing conditions and all that garbage. So, you know, I, I, I just think that there's, there's such a, an unseen part, part of this, that the damage that's being done to the overall economy is unfathomable in my view. Yeah. You don't see the jobs that weren't created no. because somebody left, right? That's right. 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 And, and just to be clear, I mean, I want to make it clear that Ed and I both support fully single payer healthcare, but the single payer is the patient. Yeah. Yep. And right now today. <laughs> We have 
$1 trillion employee money that's controlled by the employer for health yeah. insurance. If that $1 trillion were to go to the employee instead, and they could put part of it into an HSA for you know uh, out-of-pocket costs to meet their deductibles, whatever, and also pay their DPC on their own or out of that HSA, I think the world would be a lot better. We'd be more, we'd be more like veterinarians or LASIK or cosmetic surgery. There'd be a lot more providers, a lot more different types of business models to compete for our business, but we'd be spending our own money. You know, I don't need my employer to buy my health, uh, my auto insurance or my homeowner's insurance. Why do I need them to buy my health insurance? Yeah. And the, the last presidential candidate to, to do that, to, to propose eliminating that deduction was John McCain. And he got absolutely crucified for it in 2008 when he was running that, you know, they, what we should do is elim eliminate the the ability of companies to take it as as pre-tax expense. And I mean, it was just it, he, he was crucified for it. Yeah. Well, it, it's just now again, like you've got the you've got those competing interests and in different, you know, I think part of the problem too is like when you talk about value pricing and I know you've, you've done a lot of work on this too, Ron, like depending on who you are, like where you are in the consumption chain, your, what is valuable to you is going to be valuable only to you in that, in that extent, right? Like the, the payer is valuing something differently than the provider is and the patient is providing is valuing something different than that provider is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and besides like DPC, where it's kind of that direct relationship where we're kind of moving towards healthcare and like our, our goal is for you to be healthy and kind of our incentives are aligned on that structure. Um, any other roads that you see out there that kind of help align or connect or kind of get everybody moving in the same direction where the value, where at least the incentives are pro providing this, where we're all kind of looking at the same value, what is valuable to us, right? You mean our, our outside of DPC? Yeah, or, outside or of DPC, just, do you see anything else that, that kind of aligns those incentives? Some of these experiments that these drug companies are doing uh, are really oh, interesting. Oh, yeah, you mentioned the rebate model, the, right? The rebate, yeah. Roche has got something they call personal reimbursement models, PRMs, uh -huh. that uh, where the price is literally being driven by that individual patient's response to their drug and the efficaciousness of that drug. This is something that's talked about in this book called um, The Ends Game. And one of the co-authors is going to be on with us in a couple weeks on the 29th to talk about this. And, and he's the guy that uh, kind of documented some of these drug models. Johnson & Johnson even had an oncology treatment that they sold to the United Kingdom. And they said, only pay us if the, the uh, tumor you know, goes smaller. into remission. Oh, wow. Um, those types of experiments are going to happen at the edges. They're going to they're going to be slow. They're going to be incremental, but they're going to happen. Especially if we get into this individualized medicine, which seems to be really promising. Yeah. Um, so I look at that and and pretty encouraging. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about drugs and do we need patent laws? You know what would what would happen if we got rid of our patent laws? Would drug companies stop innovating? Well, if you look at the fashion industry, there's no patents or copyrights or trademarks in fashion. Look how innovative it is. Is there something fundamentally different between fashion and drugs? Maybe, but maybe not. Yeah. You kind of don't know until you start 
experimenting a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah, so and why not let people? Why not let people di- directly subscribe to a drug company too? And and anything that the drug company comes up with while you're a subscriber, well, you you have access to. I mean, th- why not create some kind of model like that or experiment with it anyway? And you yeah. could even do this from birth. You know, it could be just part of what parents do, just like putting away money for college or something. Um, so I, there's just a million things that would happen, I think, in the absence of this heavy-handed regulation. You know, there's not a one-size-fits-all. Let a million flowers bloom, I think, would happen. Just like some ideas nobody, will be good, some will be bad, and that, we'll, we'll let let the, the the cream come to the top. I mean, we're sitting here on Zoom. Nobody would have dream, dreamt up Zoom. I don't know when this started ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Google, Facebook. I mean, we we're surrounded by things that weren't here twenty years ago. What would happen in the health sector? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and 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 I'm not saying that great things haven't happened in the health sector. They have. They've been. But I think they've been in spite of the headwinds they're up against with all this regulation. I just wonder how much better it would have been without the regulation. Yeah, it makes me think of that book. Um, oh, I can't the I can't remember who wrote it. Doctor Mary something about the FDA and how we were robbed. Mary Ruart. Mary yes. Mary Ruart. Death by regulation. Yes. Yeah. How we were robbed of a golden age of healthcare. <laughs> mm-hmm. That book is devastating. Yeah. (laughs) It's very depressing. Like Ed said, Ed, you said something was like, this is worse than your worst Stephen King book, you know, because it's true. Because it's real. Yeah. 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 Well, guys, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, I ask everybody this at the very end. If there's one or two main takeaways that you would want a listener to walk away with from the show, um, we'll start with you, Ed, and then move to you, Ron. Uh, What would they be? I'm going to steal the one that Ron brought up, which is stop conflating healthcare with health insurance. Okay. I think that's a real important takeaway. And I would say, uh, let's restore the $1 trillion to the employees because it's coming out of their wages because the employer doesn't care who they pay it to. Yeah. Uh, let's give that trillion back to the employee and let them control their own medical decisions because I, I don't think healthcare is a right, but I think the right to control how I spend my money that I earn is a fundamental right. And so let's restore that trillion back to the employees. And then I think that'll take us a long way towards uh, improving the sector in total. Awesome. Well, guys, thanks for so much for being on the show. Um, where can people find out about you, about the soul of enterprise, about Verisage, all of that? Uh, you can check out the show at thesoulofenterprise.com. And also we have a Patreon channel where we do bonus shows and supplemental things like we're having a wine and cheese later on today. Uh, and that is at patreon.com slash TSOE. Verisage is the think tank that Ed and I run. So you can find us there at verisage.com. I'm on Twitter at Ronald Baker. I'm one of the LinkedIn influencers. So you can follow me there and read blog posts there. And um, yeah, any one of those will will get you to me and Ed. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, guys. Have a good one. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Rafi. Well, I hope you enjoyed that sort of high-level discussion about 
healthcare incentives, business models, innovation within the healthcare space, I think very often as a clinician, a clinician turned consultant and a clinician turned business owner, it's very easy to think about the the individual interactions, right? The 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 patient that comes in or the client that comes in that we're servicing at a sort of a one-on-one level. But very often, at least in my experience, talking with administrators and program directors and the like, there's a general understanding that something is off in healthcare. We don't know what it is. Some people point towards, oh, it's productivity or, oh, it's this, that, and the other. And we very rarely take a step back to really think about the incentives around or the incentives driving the behaviors and the decisions. One, the policies that are sort of putting those incentives in place. And then what sort of creative solutions organizations can take on a case-by-case basis to innovate and to kind of advance and move beyond them, right? So the we've had Dr. Lambert's, I think he was episode like two or three of the podcast talking about direct primary care and his whole decision-making process around the decision to leave and not accept insurance and third-party payers because of what he saw was happening to his own practice, his own work-life balance one, but then also the the quality and the level of care that he was not able to provide to patients simply because of the demands and the constraints of operating within that kind of fee-for-service third-party payer system, right? And I'm not saying that every organization needs to look at doing something super drastic like that, but there are ways in everyday practice, in everyday just the process of care even at our organization where we can think about doing things a little bit more differently or a little bit um, altering the process a little bit in a way that one increases and improves the value and the quality of services that we deliver to clients and patients without unduly or unnecessarily one either placing an increased administrative burden on our staff or clinicians while empowering our clinicians to really provide value or to think about the value that they're providing to their clients or their patients on a consistent and a regular basis. One of the things that I do with clients all the time at RehabU and what I do with staff here at Proactive is we, we talk about what is the value of the services we provide and why is a patient or a client even coming to see us or you, right? So this might involve something as very simple as giving clinicians a little extra time to provide a treatment on the day of evaluation if you're talking about um, the physiotherapy world, or it might be the process by which you obtain patient information and onboard patients for a first appointment or something like that. Things that might not necessarily add any extra time, maybe just changing the order in which you are doing it, but doing so in a way that provides value out of the gate for a new client or a new patient. And then obviously, whenever you run into an issue of payer uh, payer resistance <laughs> or something similar, where you can begin to think a little differently about how you're delivering the services and how you're packaging them in a way that really, again, incentivizes high quality care. So we've had issues at the clinic that I run maybe where 
we're out of network with a, a provider or, or, or a patient's insurance company, or the, the patient or the client has maxed out on their available benefits for the year and their insurance company won't pay for it anyways, which means the patient is going to be paying out of pocket for services going forward. And maybe they perhaps need continued services. And we have those discussions about how can we set something up, uh, an agreement up, if you would, where we're able to provide you the services in a way that you find valuable, that helps achieve whatever outcome or whatever goal you're looking to achieve in a way that is one, affordable for you, economically feasible for you, um, and two, financially viable for us as the organization, right? Whether this be some sort of package service that involves you know, virtual service delivery, asynchronous telehealth, and, and synchronous in-person or in-clinic treatments, or something similar, right? A combination of all of that. Um, we as clinicians, especially in the private practice space, where we're kind of, we don't have that maybe the cash cushion or the cash flow of like a big hospital organization to provide pro bono services or to, um, to, to be able to take a lag, if you would, in the cash flow, we can begin thinking very creatively about what we can do to offer services in a way that the patient or the client finds it extremely valuable, that moves the needle, if you would, for them, but keeps the lights on for us, right? So just think a little bit more about that next time you run into that. I know that I was talking to some some clients last week about something similar, and their solution was um, we just tell the patients we're not going to see them anymore. Um, and I think you're missing an opportunity when you do that because you're you're not taking that um, you're not looking at the opportunity to innovate. You're just taking the easy way out, right? <laughs> um, Anyways, but that's all I've got to say about that. I will link to all of the places where you can connect with Ron and Ed and check out the Soul of Enterprise on the show notes. So you can find that at uh, rehabupracticesolutions.com slash better outcomes. Uh, go check that out. If you like the show, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. It helps people find the show, helps spread our message. And if you are looking to develop a system at your clinic or organization, that fills your schedule with patients that are both engaged and participatory in the services you provide, that also value and prioritize showing up to their appointments and to be an actual participant in their treatment plan, then check out the Ultimate Patient Experience Blueprint where we help organizations craft the strategy to attract, acquire, engage, and retain those patients that really find their services valuable. You can find that at www.rehabupracticesolutions/upe. That's rehab the letter U practice solutions/upe for the ultimate patient experience blueprint. Until the next time everyone be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.